Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to talk about Immanuel Kant's notion of the categorical imperative. But before jumping into that, if you're new here, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts in a way that makes them accessible to help you on your philosophical journey. So if you're new here, be sure to subscribe, uh, like, share, hit that bell so that you can come back every single week where I'll release a new video, sometimes twice a week. And tell your friends, who knows, they might get a kick out of it. If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter uh, at David Guignot, where I sometimes tweet things. If you want to help me out, obviously like, share, subscribe. That would help me out a lot. If you want to help me out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure, of course. If you're listening to this in podcast form, you'll be able to find the video on YouTube. If you found this on YouTube, you'll be able to find this pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts where there shouldn't be any ads. So that's obviously uh, better. Now, I don't want to waste any more of your time with that. Let's jump into this. Now, to get a, the kind of real sense, the full sense of what uh, Kant is on about here, you have to look at both his texts, the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals, or of the metaphysic of morals, depending on the translation, as well as the second critique, so the critique of practical reason which comes after the critique of pure reason and before the critique of judgment. Now I've covered both of those texts, that is the groundwork and the critique of practical reason on here. So you can go and check those out in their entirety if you want a more full-fledged discussion because I'm gonna be somewhat brief here just discussing this one term, uh, but you'll get, I think, everything you need to from what I'll give you here to uh, get you on your way to knowing what Kant is on about with the categorical imperative. So the easiest way to approach this is to look at it as a term. That is, it is a term comprised of two words, categorical and imperative. And Kant really systematically gives us these terms in a, in a deliberate way. So it's important that we break them down, explain what they are, and then we'll explain what they mean when they're put together. So for him, categorical is opposed to the hypothetical. See, you can have a categorical imperative or a hypothetical imperative. A categorical imperative is one that pertains to the will, which is kind of a, a slippery term. Like, what is this thing called the will? Well, it relates to the propensity of the human or any human to engage in free actions. So I need to spend some time to kind of unpack that. So when we're talking about will here for Kant, he is implying some degree of freedom. So we have freedom in this world. Now, he also says that we don't have freedom in a very interesting way. Now, the way that he is able to make sense of that, to say on the one hand that we have freedom as humans, we have uh, freedom of choice, we have the capacity to choose, we aren't always determined by, let's say, God in advance. The way that we have both freedom and non-freedom is because we exist both in what he calls the phenomenal world and the noumenal world, which are two very uh, fancy terms. And let me just quickly explain them. The phenomenal world pertains to the world that we see, the world that we can touch, the world that we can experience, that we have mediated to us through our senses, through our uh, perceptions of the world, that we can then with what he calls the categories in the first critique, with these faculties that we have, we can make sense of that world. So we have within us some propensity to experience the world at all. And that is what 
he does in the first critique, the critique of pure reason, is really demonstrate what these things are. They give us this capacity to experience the real world. Now, for that reason, we all have the capacity to experience the world, but we all experience it somewhat differently, which is not a very radical thing to say. I mean, I, uh, someone might not like tomatoes and someone else might like tomatoes. Neither of those things says something true about what a tomato is. It only tells us what our perception of the tomato is, really. Now, underneath the tomato is a thing, but we don't actually know what that true thing is because we only ever experience it in terms of our experience of it. That is, in terms of our sensing it, which is obviously going to be subjective. It's going to be different from person to person. Now, in the phenomenal world, things operate by the law of cause and effect. So there is no effect that occurs without a cause. So nothing happens in this world that wasn't determined by something before it. Now these are the properties of the phenomenal world. Now in the case of the tomato, when there is, we know that there is something beneath it, that is a thing that we don't we can't see, we can't feel, we can't touch, but we know is there because it gives possibility to our experiencing of it. That is the domain of the noumenal world. That is the thing in itself, the world in which things are to themselves that we as humans do not have the capacity to actually experience because we only experience the world through our senses and everyone experiences it differently. So we have these two worlds. We have the phenomenal world of experience, of appearance, of sense, versus the noumenal world, which is the world of things in themselves. Things as they appear to themselves that we, or any other creature, does not have access to because we only experience it through our senses. Now in the phenomenal world, because everything operates by the law of cause and effect, we don't really have freedom for Kant. We are always going to be t determined by a previous instance that was going to shape us uh, in some way or other. So we are always determined somewhat in advance, which limits our propensity for freedom. Now, because we are also things in ourselves, but we can't experience ourselves as a thing in itself because we only ever experience ourselves through our senses, like if we look at ourselves in the mirror, we aren't seeing ourselves as we are, we are only experiencing ourselves as we have the capacity to sense it in that way. So if someone happens to have maybe a condition where they see uh, colors differently, or just anyone who doesn't have any condition at all will just experience themselves when looking in the mirror differently than when other people do. Now because of this, as humans, we are both perceivers of the world, that is, of the phenomenal world, and we also belong to the noumenal world because we are things in ourselves even though we can't perceive that. So on the one hand, we are bound by cause and effect in the phenomenal world, but on the other hand, we are open to the possibility of freedom in the noumenal world that is not bound by these laws for Kant. And he's very hypothetical about this. He's saying we can only infer that maybe there is this noumenal world, but we don't actually know what properties it has. But if there was a way for us to have freedom, that would be how it would happen. It would happen in that domain. Now he uses this as a point of departure to think about the capacity for freedom of choice, the capacity to choose. We aren't always determined 
in advance. That is, we are in the phenomenal world, but we have some capacity, a remnant almost, or a, a kind of takeaway from the noumenal world that gives us the potential to act upon ourselves, to act upon the world in a way that breaks from the confinement of cause and effect at some points. So it's because of that that he says, well, we have to then begin to consider what is proper? What is a correct action? What is a correct way to live in the world? So he opposes a categorical imperative to a hypothetical imperative by saying that a hypothetical imperative is one that pertains to the realm of cause and effect. A hypothetical imperative says that, well, if there is this cause, it will produce this effect. And you can have, I guess you could come up with a law about that. You know, we have certain laws about uh, cause and effect that will determine what will happen. If I drop a pencil, it will land on the floor. And that's just what will always happen. And we can, we can infer a certain law from that. However, a categorical imperative is one that's going to relate to the propensity of our will, of our freedom of choice, of our freedom of possibility, and whether or not that is in accordance with the realm of cause and effect. Now, I've just kind of laid out what categorical versus hypothetical is, but I should also consider this idea about the imperative. Now, an imperative is a law, and he opposes that to a maxim, and a maxim is just a subjective almost opinion, or it can be like a subjective rule, where someone's maxim can be that they uh, never wake up after 11. You know, it's not something you can extend to all humans, like that's not something that uh, is, would be applicable to everyone, and so we can't infer that it would be a law. Whereas an imperative is a law. So what I've just kind of done here, that is recapitulating Kant's argument, is demonstrate that the capacity for us to have laws at all, that is, things that we take to be universal, can only come from reason. That is, they can only come from, as he puts it, pure practical uh, reason versus just practical reason. So we can't infer laws from experience alone because we all have different experiences. It would be totally absurd for us to take from experience certain laws because they won't apply to everybody. Now Kant is clear that once we have established the possibility of a categorical imperative, then we can begin to discuss what that actually looks like. And the real kicker here is that there is no very clear example. That is, there isn't this universal that we can actually uh, attach it to. We could maybe give some examples to try and illustrate it, like, for instance, sacrificing yourself to save someone else but that would just be, you know, you could possibly explain that because, oh, the person will get fame out of it. And then it wouldn't be an action for itself. It would be an action for something else or acting in accordance with your will, not for the will alone, but for fame, you know, that will extend beyond you, beyond your death. So while we can't attach a specific example to this because you know, an example is just going to throw us back into the realm of experience. Instead, to illustrate the categorical imperative, I think it's easiest for us to imagine the very possibility of a law at all, or the very possibility of us to say that there are things that are right and wrong, things that are moral, things that are immoral. Even though we disagree on what those might be, 
the very propensity to say that there are things that are wrong, things that are right, demonstrates that there is more to us than just what we've learned through experience. That is, we can derive from our experience various possible laws, various possible imperatives that point to something beyond just the realm of experience. And this, in his kind of um, Christian way, points us, in a sense, toward God. Because it is only God, if there is a God, that has a connection that is bound purely by the noumenal world. That is, God exists within the noumenal world, so it would be impossible for us to actually uh, come in contact with God, to see God, touch God, anything like that. In that way, because God is something that exists in that world, God acts only in accordance with what is absolutely duty, in, in Kant's words, or in relation to the will. So God never feels like, oh, should I do this or that? Everything that God does is absolutely proper. Humans, on the other hand, because we are bound by experience that are going to throw us in various different directions, that are going to, in a sense, make it difficult for us to attain any kind of cohesion in terms of proper moral duty, because of that, we can't know for sure if any of our actions are actually going to demonstrate the categorical imperative or be in the service of it. So the way that one way we can get around this is to recognize that all humans are in the same boat. That is, we all exist at the interstitial, in the kind of liminal space between the phenomenal and the noumenal world. So we are all things in ourselves, and we are all things bound by experience, that experience the world, that experience other humans. So we should recognize at that moment then, once we've come to terms with this, that all other humans are in themselves things in themselves, that also experience the world, experience us. So it's from there that Kant suggests, well, perhaps one of the first things that we should do is recognize that all humans should be treated as ends in themselves, that is, as full-fledged beings that exist in this kind of liminal space between the two, that are open to the kind of domain of the noumenal, the domain of uh, the what is, I guess, beyond the realm of experience. And he opposes that to treating humans as means in themselves, that is, treating humans as a way to make your life better, because that would just be you trying to make your life better within the world of experience instead of the world of uh, the world beyond experience and it would be to reduce those people simply to your own will your own will that is guided by the realm of cause and effect in that you say oh well if i exploit these people if i use them for my own want then i'm going to make uh, profit from that the effect of that is going to be relating to a, a hypothetical imperative is going to warrant me more joy within this kind of phenomenal world, which Kant is totally displeased with. He sees no value to that at all, because you have not only reduced someone to uh, something that is that doesn't actually make sense to them, you have even thrown yourself further away from the possibility of attaining what I will just kind of brazenly say uh, attaining a degree of uh, transcendence, if I can just 
please be gentle with me with with Kant uh, what I'll just brazenly say is transcendence moving beyond or coming into contact with the possibility of uh, a glimmer of a glimmer of the noumenal world something that is beyond experience now once we have effectively established that all the humans exist in themselves and so that they should be treated as ends and not means then we can extract from that a more comprehensive idea here and that is that to act in accordance with the categorical imperative is to act in such a way as your actions can be interpreted can be uh, applied as a universal law and this is certainly the case when we can in the case of treating humans as ends in themselves as beings much like everybody else which we can take to be a universal maxim and this is you know it, there have been efforts to work this into legislation whether it be uh, you know dealing with with human rights and whatever but those are often marred by certain prejudices that certainly limit the potential for that to actually come into full effect so if we can treat that as a universal law that we treat all the humans as ends in themselves then we can understand that the possibility for the categorical imperative is the possibility of recognizing an action recognizing like recognizing that all humans are ends in themselves that action can be extrapolated as a universal law so in this formulation it is detached from any interest that is anything that could directly benefit you in the phenomenal world in terms of like fame or riches or reputation or whatever so he gives an example of saying like if i were to say uh, i shouldn't lie because i want to protect my reputation and you were to take from that well no one should lie then we should take that as a categorical imperative then he says we're, we're totally mistaken because we hinge our not lying upon what might do to our reputation instead he says we should not a categorical imperative would be the declaration or the command that you do not lie because lying is wrong lying is not right not for any other reason just because we know it to be wrong but still the, we have to be careful with this example because it still hinges pretty heavily upon experience upon uh, various other circumstances that would you know throw a wrench in our extrapolating it expanding it to a universal practical law and that is pretty well it obviously there's a little bit more to it he writes about it quite a bit uh, but yeah if you like what I did here like share subscribe if you think I missed anything or there's anything that you really have to that, that really has to be mentioned here I'd love to hear about it uh, so you know how to do that leave a comment if you're listening to this in podcast form on on Apple Podcasts, I believe is the only place you can do this uh, leave five stars would be great leave a review uh, I, I'd love to read them and uh, yeah catch you next time